But let's begin with the, the common child's question. Where did God come from? Right? It's a great question. Because everything, every, even a child knows, everything around us came from somewhere. Money comes from ATM machines and jobs. <laughs> Food comes from grocery stores and farms. Babies come from their mommy's tummies and storks in some families. I don't know. The, the world and the stars, the trees and the animals come from God. But where did God come from? And the answer, of course, is that God is different from everything else. And that's what makes God God. God alone doesn't come from anything. God just is. God always has been. God is the uncaused causer and the uncreated creator. And that means everything else, everything, every occurrence, ultimately can be traced back to God. God is the fountain of all that is, which makes God great. It makes God unimaginable. It makes God worthy of our awe and our worship. Just think, everything around us, the the universe, life, existence itself, are all dependent upon God. You and I are dependent on God for our life, for our existence, for our very next breath. You ever do that? You ever take a breath and think, wow, God, without you, I wouldn't have taken that next breath. The late pastor and author A.W. Tozer, uh, as he puts it in his excellent book, Knowledge of the Holy, as a sunbeam perishes when cut off from the sun, so man and woman, apart from God, would pass back into the void of nothingness from which they first leapt at the creative call. We all come from God. But God did not come from anything or anyone. God has always been. On face value, it's a a simple thought, but begin to ponder it and it boggles the imagination that behind everything that is, at the heart and the beginning of everything, there is God. This has incredible consequences for us in our lives. Listen to Tozer again. I'm going to quote him a lot this morning. He has some really good things to say on this topic. He says, Philosophy and science have not always been friendly toward the idea of God. The reason being that they are dedicated to the task of accounting for things and are impatient with anything that refuses to give an account for itself. The philosopher and the scientist will admit that there is much that they do not know, but that is quite another thing from admitting that there is something which they can never know which indeed they have no technique for discovering. To admit that there is one who lies beyond us, who exists outside of all of our categories, who will not be dismissed with a name, who will not appear before the bar of our reason, nor submit to our curious inquiries, this requires a great deal of humility, more than most of us possess. So we save face by thinking God down to our level, or at least down to where we can manage him. Yet how he eludes us. Well, not only is God self-existent, eternally existing in God's self, but also as a result of this, God is self-sufficient. God doesn't need anything or anyone. I don't know if you've ever heard the idea that, that God made us because he was lonely 
or, or that God made the world because he was bored, being all by himself out there in the black nothingness. Nothing could be further from the truth. The, the creator does not need his creation. God does not need anything. The amount of love the amount of wonder, the amount of goodness and joy and creativity and delight within God's self that the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son share within themselves, within the Godhead, it's so boundless that God does not need anyone or anything else. So why did God create us then? Because God wanted to. Because God delighted to. Because God is creative. Because God is a being who is not stingy, not self-absorbed, not needy. No, just the opposite. God is someone who delights to pour out of himself life and beauty and wonder like a spring that summer and winter gushes forth a steady stream, cool, uh, a steady stream of cool, refreshing water. So in that way, God exudes life and goodness. And so in our text this morning, we read verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God is self-sufficient. God does not need anything from us. God does not need our praise. God does not need our attention. God does not need our obedience or our sacrifice. God does not need our love or our affection. When we think we can offer something to God, we just flatter ourselves, but at the same time we diminish and we dumb down who God really is. And boy, this is, this is hard for us to realize, at least for me as a pastor, as someone who's paid to do the God thing. I'm so tempted to think that I can do God some favors, that I can help God out. And you know, this is a very common religious tendency. It has been for millennia. People have been trying to help the gods out. Building them temples, uh, setting up part priests to minister to the needs of the gods, offering the gods sacrifices. Why do we do this? Because we want to matter. We want to be important. We want to feel necessary or powerful even. We have a need to be needed. And we have a lot of trouble with a God so great that we aren't needed by him. And we Christians, we can fall into this trap too, this low thinking about God as if God needs us. And too often Christian leaders have been guilty of exploiting this. Give us money so we can build this building or start that ministry. Come volunteer. Jo join the cause so that we can help God out. Or how about this? The millions are in need. They're, they're suffering. They're going hungry. They're perishing apart from Christ. If you don't help, who will? Come on, help meet the need. Do it for God. Or how about when someone is saying bad things about Jesus or criticizing God and we just feel we have to jump in and stand up for God? But why? Because God doesn't need our help. As the band U2 put it in one of their songs, stop helping God across the street like a little old lady. They're talking to church people. 
The Bible never motivates us this way. It never motivates us based on what God needs. Because God doesn't need us. But God will use us. God wants to use us. As Tozer puts it, God needs no one, but he'll work through anyone. God doesn't need us any more than than we need help from our three-year-old to bake muffins or to fix that flat tire. But we let them help, right? Because we love them. And because we want them to grow up and to gain confidence that they can be useful, that they can do important stuff. That's why we, we let them help and even ask them to help. And it's the same with God, I think. God wants our help. Not because God needs help, but because God loves us and God knows that we need to be helpful. And so God offers us the amazing gift, the amazing privilege of being part of what matters most and what is supremely important. He says, come on, be a part of what's important to me. God invites us into God's own work, into God's own purposes, because God loves us and God wants to draw us in to draw us close. And so why do we feed the hungry? Why do we give toward God's work? Why do we share about Jesus? We do it because we get to. Because we've been invited to. We do it because it delights God. We do it to please God. We do it to glorify God. But we do not do it because God needs our help. Because God is self-sufficient. And this frees us up to stop striving, to stop worrying, to stop feeling so much pressure, to stop guilting one another, and to enjoy serving God with expectancy and with gratitude and with worship. It also frees us to try things for God and even to fail at them and to ask God to do far more through our feeble efforts than we imagine possible. Because God's purposes don't depend on our success and our smarts and our power as much as on God's power. Because God is self-sufficient. God is also all-powerful. God has all power. But if God is all-powerful, why do we look at the world and quickly realize that everything isn't the way it should be? Why doesn't God just make everything what it should be if God's all-powerful? Well, that's a deep question that humanity has been pondering for millennia. And part of the answer, if we're honest, is that we don't want God to make everything the way it should be. We don't want God to make things just the way they should be. We made this clear in the Garden of Eden. When God told us to do X, and we chose to do Y instead. Because here's the thing, we like the idea of God making everything the way it should be in the world in general and for other people, but we don't like it for ourselves. At least until Jesus comes and changes our heart. Right? Let's be honest. Do you obey God perfectly all the time? With joy and without reservation because you just want God to make everything exactly the way it should be. Or do you sometimes resist what God wants and what God says is best? Listen to Tozer again and excuse the exclusive language. 
The, the natural man is a sinner because and only because he challenges God's selfhood in relation to his own. In all else, he may willingly accept the sovereignty of God. In his own life, he rejects it. For him, God's dominion ends where his begins. For him, self becomes capital S, self. And so one of the mysteries of the universe is that an all-powerful God tolerates our rebellion. God allows us to not have things God's way. And God allows his creation to fall to shambles as a result. And yet this does not mean that God is any less powerful. No, God has all-powerful. God has boundless power. God can do whatever God wants to do. God has the power, the ability to do it, and there is nothing and no one that can stop God. God never gets tired. God's energy never gets used up. God never has to recharge. God is a boundless source of never-ending power. God exerted that power when he created the universe. God exerts it when he sustains it moment by moment. God exerted it when he achieved the salvation of humankind, defeating sin, destroying death, and installing Jesus Christ on the throne of the universe. God has all power. You know, we don't realize this the way people used to realize it because we live in such a scientific world. We think in terms of the natural, not the divine or the miraculous. While the ancient person may have stood in awe of, at the power of, of a great thunderstorm, we understand sort of the meteorology behind it and that there's low pressure and high pressure and buildup of static electricity, etc. We understand so much. And we've been trained to think in terms of the laws of nature. And because we understand these things, we have imagined God and God's power right out of the equation. So spring doesn't come because God, by, by his great power, brings what is dead back to life. No, spring comes because the earth wobbles on, back on its axis toward the sun. And the, uh, our hemisphere gets more direct rays and the days are longer. And babies aren't born because God creates a brand new and unique life where none was before. No, babies are born because a sperm fertilizes an ovum and mitosis occurs and the blastocyst then implants in the uterus, etc. And we don't recover from the flu because God intervenes in our lives, breathing healing and health into our sick bodies. No, we recover because the virus runs its course and Eventually, our immune system fights it off. Now, as Christians, we understand that God works through these scientific means, right? That God is at work in the tilt of the earth and the process of conception and the ability of our immune system. But still, it's so easy for us to forget the power of God when everything is being explained to us through natural causes. And so, we have to remind ourselves, as to quote Tozer again puts it, that natural laws are simply the paths God's power and wisdom take through creation. Isn't that good? Let me say that again. Natural laws are simply the paths that God's power and God's wisdom take through creation. 
God is at work. God has all power. And God is constantly exerting and exercising that power around us. Paul reflects on this in our passage. He's not relating it to science, but he's relating it to anthropology and geopolitics. Verse 20, from one man, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Do you realize that? That the Chinese are in China because God placed them there? And the Roman Empire rose and fell because of God's choice and power? And the current mass migration of Africa and parts of Asia to Europe, that God is at work in that? And America, we are here, and it is God's doing. And if God wants to uproot us, God has the power to do that as well, whatever the decisions or policies of Washington. It's interesting that Paul says that that God did all this. God made the nations. God marked out their boundaries. And God appointed their times in history so that the nations would seek God and perhaps reach out for God and find him, though he's not far from any of us. Because that's not our conclusion from these things often, right? When we study history, when we consider geopolitical events, we don't conclude that God is showing us more of himself. Why not? Why, why don't we see God in these things? Maybe because the news and the history books all have other explanations for why the nations rose and why they fell. And they seldom conclude with a note of praise or awe that ultimately it's an all-powerful God behind all these things. And so it's easy for us to forget, too. You know, remembering God's power in all of these things that we see around us is part of forming a biblical worldview, which is so important, especially for high schoolers and for college students, to realize that while it's, it's good to learn all we can about science and math and social studies and humanities, we dare not lose God behind all the explanations of the secondary causes. We, we have to see God in all of God's power and wisdom in and through and behind all that we study rather than divorced from it, often the, the uh, Bible department in some godforsaken building on the edge of campus. <laughs> Paul reminds us in, in verse 28, for in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. And then Paul adds down in verse 30, in, past, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Ignorance. He's, he's talking specifically about idolatry. Thinking and, and perspectives that, that shrink God down from the amazing, immense, powerful creator and sustainer to, to mere created objects. Gold, silver, stone, carved and crafted by human hands. But more broadly, this ignorance has to do with failing to see a single, all-powerful God behind everything and, and to reach out for him and to give God honor and worship and to allow God to be all-powerful in our own lives. And Paul says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You might know that the Greek word repent is metanoia. It literally means to change your mind, to change your thinking, to have a paradigm shift, to adapt a new worldview, to think differently about life and the universe, and to see an all-powerful and all-wise God behind and through and in it all. 
and then to change our lives accordingly, to live in light of this new reality that we've come to realize. And then Paul concludes verse 31, for God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so in the end here, God focuses our attention on Jesus, the ultimate expression of God's power in bringing salvation to the whole world. How does God save us? How does God exert the greatest demonstration of power ever exercised? By coming to us himself in the person of a poor Jewish carpenter from an overlooked place called Nazareth to be ridiculed, rejected, shamefully executed on a cross for doing nothing wrong. What a way for God to exert his power by humbling himself, by giving up that power. Though God has all power, God doesn't flaunt it, God doesn't throw it around, God doesn't showboat with it. No, God gives it up and lays it down, giving his life in love for the world and for us. Not forcing God's will on people, but inviting, wooing, even pleading with us to come to him, to repent and come back to him. Perhaps God is doing that for you this morning. Yet God will not softly whisper and woo forever. God remains all-powerful. And God is still committed to one day ensuring that by any means necessary, everything gets brought back into line with God's goodwill and God's purposes. Paul says one day God will judge the world to, to that end through Jesus Christ. So there's a warning here. Now that we know that there's an all-powerful God behind everything, there's a warning not to resist and to rebel against God's power, but rather to submit to it, to bring our lives into step with it, to repent, to change our thinking, to change our lives, to, to follow God, to follow Jesus, to willingly allow God to be all-powerful, not only everywhere else and for everyone else, but in our lives. To say, yes, I want you to be powerful. I want you to be sovereign in my life. God, have your way in my life. I step aside. You are the creator. I am the creature. That's the challenge that an all-powerful God brings. But for those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus, there's also a comfort. Because God is all-powerful. And so whatever God has for you, nobody can take away. Whatever you need, whatever God wants for you, God has the power to accomplish it. Do you believe that? That's why we pray. One reason anyway, we ask for what we need. And we ask for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done because we believe that God has the power to answer those prayers. As Paul put it in Ephesians 3.20, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Right? What could we possibly ask for that God doesn't have enough power to do? Jesus said, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes 
that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Moving mountains, that's small stuff for God. After all, he spoke the universe into existence and upholds it every moment. But of course, God's not a vending machine where you put your prayer in, you pull the lever, and the answer comes out. No, dealing with the all-powerful God is about having a relationship, getting to know God, coming to trust God, and learning to want the things that God wants to give you, like a forgiving heart, like a wise heart, like a trusting and obedient heart, like a loving heart. Ask for that. And however far away you might be from that, God will start making you that way, step by step, if you hang in there for the process. God has the power to change us from the inside out. And God wants to, to set us free from the things that hold us captive, to unstick us from the places we're stuck, to take our discouragement and breathe in hope, to take our distraction and to give us focus, to take our self-preoccupation and give us love for other people, to take our anxiety, to take our shyness and to give us courage. God wants to transform us and God has the power to do it. Let me close with a story. Another pastor told me about this couple. They were married, but things had gotten so bad in their relationship that they'd gotten to the point of hating each other. In fact, they hated each other so much, evidently, that they stayed together just so they could hurt each other better. But then she came to follow Christ. And he said, whatever, religious stuff. But when he saw the change in her, after a few months, he wanted what she had. And so they both came to Christ. But they still couldn't get along with each other. And there were so many past hurts, so many destructive habits in the way they related that that finally he said, look, why don't we just go our separate ways? But she said, no. God has reconciled us both to himself. We've experienced his power. He's changed our lives. If God can't reconcile us to one another, then this whole thing is a fraud. You know, she's right. This woman had faith. She understood the power of God, that God is all-powerful, and she understood what God wants, most of all, to use that power for. Above all, to change us, to change our hearts, to change our characters, to change the negative ways we relate to one another, and so to change our relationships. Do you realize this? Do you realize the power that's available in, in a, to accomplish God's will, God's purposes in your life and through your life. Let's take a minute and pray. Let's ask God to do that right now. Maybe you've never surrendered to the all-powerful, sovereign God. That your life is, is a castle, it's a fortress with the gates up and you're holding out your king or queen of your own little domain. And God may be sovereign everywhere else, but he's not allowed to be sovereign in your life. And maybe you realize you want to let down the, the uh, what's it called? The gate, the moat, <laughs> the drawbridge, <laughs> and uh, welcome God in.
you can do that this morning. You can say, God, you have set your son Jesus up as the king of all, as the sovereign one. And you have, he has come offering forgiveness, offering clemency, offering peace for those who have rebelled against him. And he'll come and befriend you and invite you to be part of his family and forgive it all because he paid for it on the cross and begin a new relationship with you, transform your life. You can ask him to do that. Or or maybe you have done that and um, there's a part of you that needs to believe in God's power to change who you are. You can ask God to be powerful, to bring transformation in that area of your life. God, hear these prayers. The prayers of your people. And answer them according to your path. Amen.